Well, our text this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, and we'll hear verses 8 through 14. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Our sermon title this morning is uh, Why Do the Nations Rage? And uh, it seemed a little, little eerily on point, uh, certainly more than I intended. And as I was reflecting on it, uh, the events of this last week realized that it pretty much made my sermon introduction go straight out the window. Uh, so I got to come up with something else. But it's actually... It's actually the events of this last week, I think, have given a helpful frame of reference by which to understand Psalm 2. That Psalm two, In Psalm 2, the psalmist is asking why the nations rage, why they are in rebellion against the Lord and His anointed. And that question made as little sense at the time the psalmist wrote it as it does today, because the mighty kings of the earth back then certainly were not talking about Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, as they were planning their wars, as they were planning invasions and, and going out to conquer other nations, just as today we don't have anybody talking about openly about persecuting Christians and the church as a national strategic goal. However, what we have seen over the last several years, particularly the last 20 years, with the reemergence of great power of the great power mindset, as we see the rise of Russia and China and a return to the politics of old. Uh, not, I'm a history teacher, so I keep forgetting um, what's the olden times and what are modern times. But because really, you know, anything in the last 2,000 years is current events. Uh, from one perspective. Um, the, that as we see these people, we look at their agendas, and it's very much about power, and we need to have power. And anyone who gets in the way of power and the accrual and the accumulation of power is to be hated and crushed. And so we've seen, interestingly, as China has moved back in an authoritarian and totalitarian state, a persecution of religious and ethnic minorities. That whereas Christians are not so dangerous because they have the same ethnicity as the Han Chinese, that the Uyghurs, who have a different ethnicity and a 
particular religion that does not comport with Chinese communism, uh, that has, they have to be persecuted and rounded up and put into camps. And meanwhile, Christians are fine as long as the Christianity is actually just another version of the Chinese communist propaganda, uh, the, the theology of the Chinese party, and I, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and it is a theology. As, as all of these things are. They are uh, ways of viewing the world and understanding the world. They rage against, the Chinese government rages against people who are getting in their way, not because they actually pose a threat, but because they will not submit to them, because they recognize that there are other things to which to submit, to which one must submit. Uh, why do we see the attack on Ukraine? because of a need for power, because there is a need to expand and to control. And the real problem, then, for kings of this earth is that there is another king, there is a greater king, that there is, they, they, they lose, they've lost sight of a simple reality, which is, we're all going to be dead. And honestly, what does it matter? I remember uh, I had a job interview, and I think this is one of the reasons I got the interview. I was asked, well, how do you handle conflict and disagreements with people? And, and I talked about, well, you know, you want to work things out or whatever, but ultimately, I don't know why I would want to get into a heated argument with anybody at work. I mean, what are the stakes? It's a job. You know, we're just going to be dead soon anyway. And I think that got me the job, like, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's your job. Like, this isn't life or death. I mean, who cares where your desk is uh, in the grand scheme of things? And who cares what your borders are? Because, dude, I don't care how big your country is, you're going to be dead. But the problem is that when you die, you're going to meet with the Lord God Almighty. And there's a way then to live in denial of that, and that is to accrue as much power as possible because you have as much power as possible that maybe you won't die. Maybe you will be immortal, which is a lie of the evil one, but is also the lie, of course, which is driven, which is driven every great man and every great empire in the history of the world. And that's why the nations rage. Is ultimately, at the end of the day, what they're furious about, what the kings of the earth are furious about, is that there is someone else to whom they must give account. And so, like a toddler, they fight and they scream and they destroy anyone who gets in their way. And too often, then, that is the people of God. Psalm 2 is a framework. Uh, it's one of these passages that helps us to interpret the rest of the Bible and to understand it better. Just as the Bible helps us to understand the whole world in which we live, there are certain passages in the Bible itself which help us to give us a grid, a framework by which to understand uh, the rest of the Bible as a whole. And so that's why we're using, and I'm using Psalm 2 as sort of framework to introduce and to understand what's going on in Exodus chapter 1 where we see very much the nation's rage. We see the kings of the earth. We see Pharaoh uh, angry at the Lord, not in any way that's, that's obvious to the people of his time, but which are obvious to those with eyes to see and who approach the text from the, stand, the vantage point that we're given in Psalm 2. That, and so in that context then, what Psalm 2 teaches us is to not be afraid, 
but rather to trust God to vindicate you. As we approach Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, then we'll see in the first place that the wicked's plots are self-defeating. The wicked's plots are self-defeating as Egypt attacks its friends. In verse 8, we're told that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And that's important. You have to, well, who is Joseph? We need a little bit of background on who Joseph is. And so a reminder of the second half of the book of Genesis in its entirety. Uh, And it's about the rise of Joseph and the importance of Joseph. Joseph was the second youngest son of, of Jacob, also called Israel, and he was sold by his brothers into slavery and ultimately became, in the good old-fashioned American way, the prime minister of Egypt and pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, if you will, and also because of God's providential hand who gave him the gift of prophecy and things like that, uh, because God also is in control. So he ended up saving Egypt from famine, and in fact, using through him, the, the, the Lord through him, uh, rose Egypt from, not, not only saved Egypt, rather, but uh, gave Egypt the ability to become the most powerful nation of its time. And that was Joseph. Joseph did that. Uh, and then not only Joseph, but it's important to understand that his, the rest of his family played an important role in Egypt. As uh, Joseph ended up in Egypt through, uh, by, by being sold into slavery, sort of through this series of events, uh, his, the rest of his family ended up in Egypt because of that famine that destroyed the rest of the world, but, through it, but helped Egypt accrue the power to become the breadbasket of the world at that time. Uh, his family ends up joining him, end up joining Joseph in Egypt. And in Genesis 47, verse 6, as they move, uh, and it's a pretty large family, as I said, Joseph was the second youngest son. That's the second youngest son out of 12. Uh, and there were some daughters too. So there's, there's, there's a lot of people. Uh, and so they moved this large group of people. And Pharaoh told, said to Joseph in Genesis 47, Uh, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. And so there's a hint there of the role that the family of Israel, the family of Jacob, the sons of Jacob, are going to take in the Egyptian agricultural economy which is uh, that they, they become very important in livestock and in helping people, in helping the agricultural sector, at least, of Egypt grow. They become artisans. They become important to the economy of Egypt over the intervening 400 years as they grow. Then as those 12, as those 12 families grow into what will become 12 tribes, because you know, most of you know where the story ends up going. Uh, that there are 12 tribes of Israel that will eventually be, come out of Egypt. So the key here, though, is to recognize that there was a new king, a new king who did not know Joseph, and to unpack the meaning of that. It's been roughly 400 years since the death of Joseph, and so who is the new king? This isn't just, this is most likely not a reference to just somebody, some king, and then his son, and then his son, and then his son, but likely to a new dynasty, a new family taking over the throne of Egypt that does not have any connection, any direct connection with the families, with the dynasties that preceded them. 
And so without that connection, looking at the land, surveying, now, now I'm in charge, and asking, well, who are these people? He doesn't, it's interesting, he doesn't take the time to get to know the situation, to get to know the history. Rather, he thinks of himself as wise. And so wise people don't really need to learn anything. Uh, you may have met a few wise people like that in your time, people who are really impressed with themselves and, and how much they know and how much they know of the way of the world and who have absolutely no time to hear anything from you because they're so busy telling you how much they know about the ways of the world and how wise they are. And that's the kind of king whom we have here. He doesn't pay attention to who Joseph is, doesn't pay attention to who his family is. I can understand not, not knowing or not even caring who Joseph may have been. And that's 400 years ago. Um, 400 years ago was, well, there's math here, but that's a 1622. That's a pretty long time, and so you probably don't care about the kings of Ohio uh, back in that day. I mean, that would be an interesting history class. Uh, but but so, you, so you're not paying attention to the kings of this land as you live here under a new king, uh, the, the governor of Ohio, his majesty. Uh, but you see why that wouldn't be relevant, but, but you should be paying attention, right? You would pay attention to, 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 to the great powers uh, in Ohio and to the economy of Ohio, especially if you're going to overthrow the governor of Ohio. I'm not recommending that. I'm just realizing somebody's like tuning in right now on a live stream, and it's like this is, this is going to be on Fox News. Um, but you want to pay attention in your... We're not plotting a coup. But anyway, if you plan your coup, uh, to, to what's important in the economy, and clearly this family plays a big role in the economy. But that's not how the king thinks about it. He sees an, an identifiable ethnic and religious minority. And what he sees uh, is what the kings of the earth have, have always seen, is that this identifiable ethnic and religious minority, well, they're not like us in some way, shape, or form. They don't share our loyalties. And if they don't share our loyalties, they may not be perfectly loyal to me, uh, may not be perfectly loyal to my government and to my plans. That's a problem. So he says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And it's worth asking, what was his evidence? What does the text say about the threat that Israel was posing to, to the land of Egypt? And, and so now I see a lot of you have your Bibles, you're looking down and say, well, what does it say? And the answer is nothing, because it's not there. There wasn't anything. But he feels threatened because it's an identifiable ethnic and religious minority who may have an ultimate commitment to something other than Pharaoh and his agenda. He doesn't look at these people and say, here's some people who are helping my country, who are helping my country run, who play an important role in the economy. Doesn't think about the blessing that God has given him and the people of Israel, this family who's descended, but rather interprets them as a threat. And this is the arrogance of fools. If the fools of this world think of themselves as wise, 
you've probably had the same experience that I have, which is nobody has ever come up to you and said, hey, how you doing? I'm a fool. (laughs) Whatever you do, don't take my advice. Right? I mean, I I will tell you that, but, but, you know, that's generally speaking, they don't, they don't say that because they don't, fools don't see themselves that way. Fools think of themselves as wise. You should listen to me. You should pay attention to me. I'm wise. I know what I'm doing. Fools are arrogant. One of the primary identifying characteristics of folly is arrogance. I am right about everything. And they're serious when they say that. I am right about everything. And so in his arrogance, the arrogance of folly, this king tries to destroy a blessing which God has given him. And this is what fools always do. Fools always destroy the blessings which God has given them. And so Egypt plans to attack its friends. And, but more, Egypt ultimately creates an enemy within. Because what, what does Egypt do? Well, the Egyptians uh, afflict the Israelites. They set taskmasters over them. They make them build storage cities. They afflict them with heavy labor and hard work. And they, so, so, the, so the goal, of course, is to weaken them by oppression. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. So we have to weaken them. So we're going to oppress them. We're going to make them work and work and work and make life difficult for them. Now, If you find somebody who isn't causing you any trouble or harm, is just casually minding their own business, and you punch them in the nose, I'm not recommending this as an experiment, but if you go up to this person and you punch that person in the nose, what is that person's attitude going to be towards you? Somebody said, I don't know, okay, we're doing call and response. Yeah, they're going to be mad. Uh, Yeah, they're they're, going to, you get mad. Somebody punches you in the nose, you get mad. And, you, and, then, and, then, and, then if, and then if your Christian brother comes up next to you and say, now, brother, why are you upset? And why are you, why are you angry? You say, what, are you, what is wrong with you? Right, that is, like, in the Bible, it is okay to be mad when somebody attacks you for no good reason. Right, that's not, that's not sinful anger, that's righteous anger. That's righteous anger. It's because it is wicked to attack somebody unprovoked. It is wicked to pick uh, an identifiable religious and ethnic minority within your nation state and to oppress it for no good reason. Those are wicked things. And when you do wicked things, the people who you are attacking wickedly, the people whom you are oppressing wickedly, are righteous in their anger. And so they get mad. And so the Israelites now desire a righteous vengeance. Uh, Pharaoh was afraid that if we get invaded by the Canaanites or the Hittites or the Jebusites or, or the whoever's, uh, that they're going to, the, 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 the Israelites will join with them. Well, now he's guaranteed it, right? Like, of course we're going to go join with them. I mean, you people are oppressing us. We're going we're gonna to team up with the people who might liberate us. And worse, by the same token, now they're just, just going to be mad. They're, they're actually an enemy there within Egypt's borders, there was nothing, there was nothing that Egypt had to fear before, but now they actually have an enemy to fear within their borders, within the nation itself, and, and of course, 
even though Pharaoh may not be consciously aware of it, the situation is, is much worse than that for him. It is much worse because, of course, these are the Lord's people. These are God's people, Israel. It's not just a family. It's, a, it's, a, it's the church. These are God's people of old. And God loves his people. And the Lord, because he loves his people, will act for them. And so Pharaoh needs to be afraid because the Lord will act to deliver his people and will punish Egypt. And so ultimately we can see in the first place from our text that the wicked's plots are self-defeating because those who plot against God and his people do the most harm to themselves. Uh, and before I go in further, I'm going to pull a chad. Can we close this door because I, I'm getting the glare that... Thank you. So the wicked's plots are self-defeating, but more importantly, and what we really need to see, is that it is God who defeats the wicked's plots. God thwarts Egypt's oppression of Israel. And I know that people don't use the word thwart uh, in daily conversation, but I'm trying to bring it back. Uh, so if you don't know thwart, thwart is like to destroy, to, to defeat, uh, to make it not work, make something not work. What happens as Egypt tries to oppress Israel? The plan is, uh, let's deal shrewdly with them, and so we're going to set taskmasters over them to afflict them, give them heavy burdens. That's going to ruin their lives, and they are going to be crushed, and they are not going to multiply and spread. Well, what happened in verse 12? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Instead of this plan working to oppress the Israelites and therefore stop them, stop them from growing and becoming a threat, well, the Lord makes fun of Pharaoh. He mocks Pharaoh by causing the Israelites to grow and to multiply. Now there's many more of them. The harder that uh, Pharaoh and his taskmasters Thank you. The harder that Pharaoh and his taskmasters try to make life for, for, for the Israelites, then the more they prosper and grow, the more they develop. The more, they, the, more they, the more that Pharaoh is made to look like a fool because the Lord is in charge. And it reminds me, I hope it reminds you, of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 where he talks about the wisdom of this present age and the foolishness of God that people think they can outwit God. But Paul, as Paul quoting from Isaiah says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 19, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That is to say, as Pharaoh thinks of himself as wise and shrewd, when he goes up against the Lord, the Lord will show it to be foolishness and mock it and destroy it. And, at, and because God thwarts Egypt's oppression of Israel, we see that God will liberate Israel from Egypt's oppression. Pharaoh, and, and, and to understand that, consider the fact that Pharaoh has two anti-Israel goals. Uh, and that's, that may sound, it's, it's, it's an awkward way to put it, but it's, it's just a way to help us understand. I, I say it that way to, to focus in on what uh, Pharaoh's concerns are and what his intentions are. If you look at verse 10, 
uh, I'm sorry, verses 9 and 10, there are two problems that he sees. One is that the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So there's too many of them, and that poses a threat to us. And the other is that they may uh, join with another foreign power in order to leave. So it's not simply that they might uh, help a foreign power take over Egypt. It is rather, as he says in, in verse 11, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land, that we might not have control of the Israelites anymore. And so he has, so, so therefore he has, he has two, two goals. He has to, keep the, 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 has to keep the Israelites from multiplying, has to keep the Israelites from leaving. Well, the Lord has now thwarted, has mocked that first agenda, tried to keep them under control and keep them from growing through oppression, from multiplying and having more babies. That didn't work. Uh, And so that then means something else, that if they are going, that, that, that if the Lord mocked that one goal, then he's going to mock the other goal, that in fact the people are going to leave, that there is a way forward. And here we also see the insanity of the nations as they hate the Lord and as they try to destroy people. Uh, notice notice the, the two things that are going on here. One is there's too many Israelites, and the other is we don't want them to leave. And, and this doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, unless you think about it a little bit, this would be the difference between, uh, the, between a, an oppressive culture, an oppress- a culture of authoritarian oppression, and a slaveholding culture. That, as the, 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 that in North Korea, for example, the goal is just to kill all the Christians. Right? Let's just get rid of all of them, wipe them out. And that would seem to be what Pharaoh would want to do. But on the other hand, the economy of Egypt needs the Israelites. To lose the Israelites will be to economically devastate Israel. And so we have to hold on to them. We have to keep them under control, but we have to keep them around. And this is the insanity of those who give themselves over to accruing power through controlling other human beings. I know that's a long sentence, but understand that this is the, this is the slaveholder mentality that I'm going to completely control other people's lives in order to exploit them and to benefit from them, that there's a power relationship there that treats people not as human beings but as resources. And so what you need then is you need to have the slave, you have complete control over the slave, but you can't let that slave have agency and you can't let there be too many of them because then they're going to become too powerful and they're going to act like human beings. And this is the same kind of thing that we saw in, in our country back during the slaveholding days, and we see in other places where slaves are held on to, is they have to be kept under control. You have to keep people under control. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because it's denying that other people are people, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. But that's because the kings of the earth are like everybody else on the earth, which is... I'm the most important person, and everybody else can be used for my own benefit. And so I'm going to do that, except I'm just going to do it on a massive scale. I'm going to do it with whatever power I have, because if I'm the most, and that's ultimately why we can see Pharaoh is rebelling against the Lord, whose people Israel are. That 
I am the most important person in the world. God is not. That this is ultimately oppression, oppressing the weak and the powerless is a way of making oneself more important than God, of taking the place of God as ruler over all things, is that I'm not ultimately accountable to the Lord, I'm rather ultimately accountable only to myself. And we've lost sight in the Western tradition of this mentality of rulership, but we see it asserting itself around the world, around the world today. In the West, we, we had some success at vaguely Christianizing our rulers, so they felt that they had some obligation to the people. But in, the, in other parts of the world where we have not, where Christianity has not yet corrupted their mentality, their way of thinking, they just go for pure power. And that's what you see here, is that we have to keep people under control, even at the same time that we're afraid of them. And so the Lord is asserting against this, against Pharaoh and his mentality of control, his, his desire to crush and to destroy, to be in charge over everything, is asserting again and again, no, I'm in charge that you cannot keep these people from growing and multiplying because I have made promises to them through their father Abraham. And you cannot keep them from leaving because I have made promises to them through their father Abraham. The Lord is going to watch over and protect his people. And though Israel suffers, God's promise of the land and therefore the promise of the exodus is going to come that they're going to be able to escape Egypt is far greater than Pharaoh's plots. And so God will liberate Israel from Egypt's oppression, but until then, Egypt is going to oppress Israel. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." I work with uh, adjudicated youth. Uh, it's a juvenile detention facility. And one of the things that we often tell them when they're getting mad, I, at least I tell them, um, just, it, to just recognize that you've already lost this, this conflict and you're only going to make it worse. That piece of advice is never taken. Right? No, it's just, they, they, and you can, because you, you, you've seen it, I, some of you may have done it, uh, that as you're losing, you just double down, fight harder, even though that fighting harder, even though getting angrier and angrier is only making it worse. Rather than concede that a mistake has been made, rather than acknowledge that perhaps uh, this whole anti-Israel thing is, is not a particularly wise use of resources, and, and maybe we should direct our attention elsewhere, like doing something positive instead of trying to oppress people. The Egyptians double down. They make it harder. They make it harder on the Israelites. And the Israelites are made miserable. They made their lives bitter with hard service. They experience bitterness. And I think that's something that we just need to sit in for a second, because when we hear that word bitter, and we often think of a, an emotional state, 
and people shouldn't be bitter. You shouldn't be bitter. Bitterness is going to poison your heart. It's going to poison your life. It's going to poison your attitudes, and, and you're not going to have a good attitude towards other people and towards God, and, and so you shouldn't be bitter, right? But sometimes life is bitter, and it's, it's wrong. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's a species of tomfoolery to deny that that there are people who live bitter lives. There are bitter and hard lives. And sometimes they're bitter and hard lives through God's providence for reasons that we can't understand, that he is doing something in that person's life and they're experiencing bitterness. And sometimes it's for obvious reasons, such as the oppression of the pharaohs of this world and of their taskmasters. Their lives were bitter. They were hard. There was suffering. It was not good. These were not times that were made better by reflecting on God's providence. Yes, God is, God is in charge. God is in control of all things. And still, every morning you wake up and your life is being made hard. That was their reality. That was their experience. And it was because, ultimately, they were the Lord's people. That as Pharaoh could not, could not abide the possibility, could not stand the thought that he might not be in control of all things, that there might be a threat to him and to his power. And so he had to control these people and to crush these people and to keep them in line. Because of that, their lives were made miserable. And that's a reality that, of course, is present for the church throughout her history. We are tempted in our country to complain about how difficult it is to be a Christian. Resist that temptation. Because if you had a house that you slept in last night, and you had a car, you drove here to worship, and you got to worship freely this morning, you are living the life of Riley. Broad church history scope-wise. Because around the world today, of course, there are people who are suffering. There are people who uh, find it very difficult to preach the gospel. You have to register your church. You have to have an officially approved church in order to have worship services. Yeah, think about that for a second. You have to, and that's, and that's, that's better than the places, of course, where you can't even have Bibles, which is better, mind you, the places you can't have Bibles, which is better than the places where you and your family get run over by bulldozers for being Christians. There is bitterness in the lives of believers today, not in the past, but today, because we have a martyrdom faith. We have a faith which has martyrdom at its core because there is a God in heaven whom we serve, and we ultimately cannot give our ultimate and final allegiance to the kings of this world, and therefore they have to kill us. And you may not get killed. None of us really, I mean, 
I'm not afraid of death. I just am afraid of, like, everything that's involved with death, right? Like, the, the, the being dead part, right, you get to go to glory, yes. Uh, but the, but boy, the dying part, I think we'd all like to skip. That's a reality for believers in history and today, and it's a reality that we must be prepared for always as believers. And that's why as believers, as Christians, we need Psalm 2. We need Psalm 2 because of the recursive historical reality of Exodus chapter 1. When I say recursive, all I mean by that is it's things which come back again and again and again, that these things always cycle back. They always return. And because the wicked are so often ascendant, we need to remember. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God laughed at the cross, which is a statement I'm hesitant to make because the cross, the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his death, his murder, his execution at the hands of a tyrannical authoritarian government of a fascist regime is the greatest tragedy we've ever seen. It is the triumph of the kings of this age. It is the triumph of the petty ambitions of little men who are afraid that they're going to lose their power and their authority when the truth arrives. And so they betray. They betrayed Jesus to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin turned Jesus over to the Romans, and the Romans killed him. And there, man, in all of his vanity, in his arrogance, and in his folly, and of his wickedness, triumphed over God. Triumphed over God in what has to seem the most final and absolute way as Satan himself has exactly what he wanted from the beginning. God called to account. God killed and crucified. But the Lord laughed. The Lord laughed because the rebellion of the rulers of this present age was the victory of our Lord that his death was victory. His death was triumph over the grave. His death was the death of sin. Because if he had not died, sin would not have died. But because he died, 
not for his own sin, but for your sin, for the sins of all his people, which is to say for your personal sins. The power of sin was broken and destroyed and killed once and for all. No longer having the power to condemn, the evil one is powerless. The accuser cannot accuse you because Christ has borne all of his accusations in his flesh. And because, because he triumphed over sin in his death, he was able to rise from the grave on the third day so that you might have everlasting life with him. That tragedy is turned to comedy. Comedy. Not, not comedy the way that we've cheapened the word in our day to day, but, but comedy in its, in its fullest and, 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 and classical sense of the word that is turned to joy and celebration because God laughs. God laughs. God mocks the wicked because he is triumphant over them and he will turn suffering into joy. God laughed at the cross and so therefore God laughs at this present age. As I said, current events have changed the mindset that most of you had as you came into the service this morning. That the tragic events around the world, uh, on the other side of the world today, are what you're thinking of. And you're not, maybe you've been distracted entirely from the cares of your day-to-day, the cares of, and the concerns for our country and the political order here and where Christians might stand relative to the federal government, et cetera, so on and so forth. But those will come back. And it's worth keeping in mind that we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. We certainly don't know what's going to happen in this country. I can think of some really dumb things I've said uh, in terms of, well, here's what's going to happen. As soon as I say, here's what's going to happen, I should just shut up. Uh, But it hasn't, really hasn't stopped me yet uh, from from every time I listen to the news, which is also why I shouldn't listen to the news. Um, But we don't know what's going to happen. So maybe it is the case that things are going to get bad here for Christians. Maybe it is going to be hard. Maybe uh, things will change as they've changed in the past, and maybe, uh, maybe we will be able to continue living the way that we always have. Uh, maybe the foolishness of this present age will become so obvious that people will have to repent and recognize that they are destroying themselves with the fads, with the cultural fads of this world and denying the reality uh, of people as made in the image of God and what that actually means as we live in a time of complete insanity. Instead of trying to shout down everybody who says the emperor has no clothes, people will recognize the emperor, in fact, has no clothes on. That might happen. It might not. But what we need to remember is that the Lord is the one who is in charge of this time, that the Lord laughs at those who think they are in control, that we need not fear death, 
that we need not fear anything that they do to us. And that is something that every believer in any situation under any political regime needs to remember. Because on the one hand, for people like us, it helps us to remember that these things that people are fighting about just are not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal who wins and who controls in this election or that election because Jesus is coming back either way. His kingdom is forever. It endures. But it's also important to remember that for the people who are suffering great oppression, that where it is that big of a deal, that nonetheless, Jesus is coming back and that he will establish his kingdom even over the worst tyrants and the greatest oppressors and those who persecute believers. That the Son of God is already enthroned. He was crucified and buried and raised on the third day and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's the reality. That's the reality. And everything else, everything else, including the sufferings of this present age, have to be seen in that light. And that is the comfort. There is genuine oppression. There's genuine oppression of believers. Believers are genuinely, really and truly, made to suffer and are made miserable for their faith. And it happens in a low-key, low low-register way, even in our country today. And so it's important to remember that part of what our Savior did in vindicating himself is vindicating his people. And that's an important thought. That's an important thing to remember. That vindication just simply means being proven to be right. And as the stakes of your life seem to increase, is the cost, rather, of, of pursuing Jesus and obeying him seem to increase in certain situations, and you see the wicked triumph, you might wonder what's the point. Uh, if, if I can't, if I, if, I, if, I, if, if, I, if I do what I know the Lord wants me to do in this situation, I'm going to lose my job. And that's not going to affect the boss. He's going to keep on with his job. But if I don't lie, like he's telling me to lie, I'm not going to have a paycheck. I'm not going to be able to make, pay the rent. It's not going to affect anybody but me. What's the benefit? Well, the benefit is simply obeying the Lord and recognizing that it's not about you winning now, it is rather that the Lord will vindicate your faith, that the Lord will prove you to have been right, because he is the one who will judge the kings of this earth. We don't need to. You don't need to. You don't need to triumph, because a triumph has already come in Jesus Christ. And therefore, you don't need to fear the sufferings that the wicked will try to bring, that the pharaohs of this present age will try to bring into your life. You need have no fear beloved, because our victorious Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, will certainly vindicate you and will certainly deliver you into everlasting blessing. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks then 
that we can rest in you. We give you thanks that the pharaohs of this present age have already been judged, that the rulers have been cast down, that they have only a nominal authority, and that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We look forward to your return, and as we are blessed to live with freedoms and privileges to serve you above all and to do so without fear. We pray for those around the world who are suffering for the sake of their faith this morning, who are being martyred in the most literal way possible. We pray that you will comfort them in their afflictions, and we pray that they may rejoice in the vindication that they already have for their faith in Jesus Christ, and they may rest assured that the Lord and his anointed cannot be cast down but rather that during this present age, the rulers of this present time are being given the opportunity to repent, as are all people. And so we ask that many more might give up their sin and might kiss the Son. Amen.